0: It would be extremely difficult to find anything good to say about the COVID-19 pandemic, but one of the few things even resembling a silver lining that I can find is I get to spend a lot more time with my dog. That's him now, letting me know it's time for a walk. I would guess this is probably the case with a lot of pet owners. Nothing against my colleagues and co-workers, but I prefer spending time with my dog. When we go out for walks now, we see a lot of other people out with their dogs too, even more than we used to. And that's not the only place I see more dogs. Many of my web meetings have had all kinds of dogs and pups making guest appearances. And you know what I've been struck by? There are a lot of different kinds of dogs. It's not that I just discovered this, I've known there are different breeds for a long time. it has been awesome to see all of the different sizes and shapes and colors and faces of all these different dogs and pups. The same is true for the different cats, birds, fish, snakes, lizards, everything that's popped into the meetings. When you see these different animals you can appreciate the beauty of diversity. You can see clear evidence that there is a lot of variation between species and even among members of the same species. It's amazing to me how all of this variation among individuals in all of these species is the product of the same processes acting on all living and close to living things. A lot of the variation you see not only in pets, but also in the plants in your garden, in bacteria, viruses, and even you and me, are the results of mutation, inheritance, and evolution. That's right, even the virus that's causing the COVID-19 pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, is doing what it's doing because of basic biology. I'm Phil Gibson, and welcome to Biota. In this episode, we will explore mutation, compare two types of selection, and figure out what we mean when we talk about evolution and herd immunity. By exploring these topics, we can not only understand the source of the different traits we see in species, lineages, and populations, but also how different organisms, ranging from dogs to viruses, change in response to their environment, how they adapt, how they evolve. Before we get started, I want to remind you that information about where to find a transcript, the resources I used, and other items for further exploration can be found at the end of this episode. I'll also give suggestions for some books and websites you can check out if you want to dig deeper into the evolution topics I get into here. Okay, let me begin by laying out the path we're going to follow. What I am going to do is start small by thinking about mutation as the raw material of evolution in everything from viruses to you and me. Next, we will think at a little bit bigger scale and consider how selection acts on the consequences of mutation to drive evolutionary change in a population. And then finally, we will use what we know about evolution to think about a question that has come up a lot in talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. And that question is, do populations evolve herd immunity? There are two important concepts that we need to know about for all of this to make sense. Those concepts are phenotype and genotype. Any and all of the different features and traits of an organism from the cellular level on up are what scientists call its phenotype. Height, color, smell, metabolic rate, the number of ACE2 protein receptors on the surface of cells in your nose. Hundreds of other traits as well are all part of an organism's phenotype. Many of these traits are controlled to a greater or lesser extent by the combination of genetic instructions contained in the DNA. That's what scientists call the genotype of the organism. Perhaps you've heard about genotypes and phenotypes when learning about Mendelian genetics or inheritance. Let's give a quick example of genotype and phenotype with dogs, just make sure we're all together on this. Let's think about a phenotypic trait, like spots on a dog. There are multiple different genes on the chromosome that control hair color and whether the fur has spots or not. For each of these genes, an animal gets one copy of the gene from its mother in the egg, and one from the father in the sperm. These copies of a gene are called alleles. They can be the same or different from one another in an individual. If the alleles are the same, say both mother and father have only the alleles for spots in their fur, then their gametes will contain only those alleles. And when they make puppies, those puppies will have spots too. But if the alleles are different within or between the mother and father, say the mother has spots, the father doesn't. Each puppy may have spots or not, and the litter might have puppies that are all one type or a mixture of both. The unique genetic combination of alleles for every gene in that organism is what makes up its genotype, and reproduction mixes half of each parent's genotype to make unique offspring. So unless you're an identical twin, your genotype is unique from every other living thing in the universe. The way the genotype produces the phenotype is through one gene acting alone or multiple genes acting together with one another. The environment can play a role too, but let's save that for another time. For now, just think about the genotype alone affecting the phenotype. This will apply to a lot of traits, but you can use spots on dog fur as a simple example to keep in mind as we go through this. Let's next ask ourselves, where do all of these different phenotypes and the genotypes that produce them come from? The answer is mutation. Mutations are any change in the DNA. Mutations don't always have an effect on the organism, but sometimes they do. If the mutation has no effect on how a gene is expressed, or if the mutation happens in a region of the DNA that doesn't code for anything, then we call it a neutral mutation because it has no effect. It doesn't help or hurt the organism. If the mutation occurs in a place that does affect how the gene is expressed and does influence the phenotype, it can have a negative effect on the organism. That is, it can harm or even kill it. For example, a mutation could cause a gene so that the proteins it makes can't conduct metabolic reactions properly. Or maybe cells with this mutation behave erratically. That's clearly a bad thing, and if the mutation is severe enough, the organism will not survive. If the organism dies before it is able to reproduce, the mutation dies with it. But mutations aren't always bad. A mutation could cause a change in the phenotype that benefits the individuals that have this new allele. In that case, the mutation is the raw material that evolution will work with to drive change and promote adaptation. Let's go back to thinking about dog spots. Suppose all of the dogs in a population have the same fur with no spots. Now imagine that a mutation occurs in the gametes, the sperm or the egg of one individual. Just a little change in the DNA maybe changing a cytosine for a thymine at location in a gene. But this change causes the fur of the offspring from this mutant sperm or egg to have spots. What we have here is a case of mutation, a genetic change in the DNA that produces a unique phenotype in the offspring that inherited the mutation. Now let's imagine you're a dog breeder. You might selectively choose to breed the spotted puppy once it's grown so that you can have more puppies with that phenotype, you know, more spotted puppies. If you do that, This mutation, the new spotted allele, as opposed to the original solid allele, that spotted allele will have a selective benefit for that individual. After several generations of your careful and informed selective breeding with other owners pets, what biologists would call artificial selection because humans are making the choices, the spotted allele will become more common in the population. The population has now genetically changed. It has evolved. That's all evolution is a change in the genetic characteristics of a population. Let's take those ideas we just talked about and apply them to the novel coronavirus. Just to keep things easier to describe, I'm going to lump viruses in with living things for this episode. I know I have expressed the opposite opinion elsewhere, but because, at least as far as how DNA works, and the actions and consequences of selection are concerned, virus particles experience exactly the same kinds of things as living organisms. Obviously, viruses don't inherit genetic material from their parents like dogs or people do. Instead, they infect cells and then use those cells' molecular machinery to make more copies of the virus. Despite this violent and unorthodox beginning, a virus's genetic material works pretty much the same way as in any other organism. Genes in the viral DNA or RNA are expressed just like the host genes once they infect a host cell. That's what makes you sick and that's how more virus particles get made. Sometimes, when the virus is replicating and making more copies of the virus inside of a host's cells, mistakes happen. The mistake in replicating the viral DNA or RNA is mutation, just like we talked about before. If a virus particle with that mutation infects a cell, and the cell makes copies of that mutation, then every descendant from that virus particle and their descendants will have the exact same mutation. You can think of it as a typo in a document. Every time you make a copy of the document, you make a copy of the typo too. Where the mutation occurs, how it affects what the virus does, those are the things of critical importance. Coronaviruses are known to cause diseases in humans and agricultural animals, as well as a number of wild species, particularly bats. Studies have found over 200 different coronaviruses in bats. That's about 35% of all the viruses that are known to infect bats. Although coronaviruses can cause intestinal or respiratory illnesses in humans and other mammals, they don't seem to cause serious health problems for bats. Many researchers are actively investigating why this is with the hope that this can lead to new therapies for humans. Although we can't say with 100% certainty, bats are still considered a highly probable starting point for studying the evolutionary history of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Like other zoonotic diseases, the virus eventually made its way from a wild animal population where it originated, possibly through one or more intermediate hosts, until finally infecting a human and made them sick. Researchers sequenced the SARS CoV 2 virus and found that, genetically speaking, it's very similar to a virus named Rat G13 that is very common in bats. The Rat G13 virus can't infect humans, but when we compare gene sequences in the Rat G13 and SARS CoV 2 RNA, we find two big differences. That's at least two mutations changes in the genotype that give the SARS-CoV-2 virus a new novel phenotype. Remember when we said that viruses infect cells and then use those cells' molecular machinery to make more copies of the virus? Well, one of the mutations we're talking about with SARS-CoV-2 makes the lipids in that viral coat stickier, so the virus attaches to cells better. If the virus can stick to cells better, it's more likely to be able to hang on long enough to infect that cell. That's a major advantage. Another thing, the spikes that surround the outside of coronaviruses, you know, the things that give them their name. Well, this mutation also allows the spikes to attach to specific proteins called ACE2. These ACE2 proteins are found on the surface of cells in the human respiratory system and other locations like the intestines and blood vessels. That mutation makes it a whole lot easier for the coronavirus to infect humans. There's one other thing going on that gives the coronavirus an advantage in humans too and that is that human blood is full of a molecule called furin, and it's thought to increase the virulence of some pathogens like viruses. Rat G13, you see, it doesn't react to furin. SARS-CoV-2 does. All of these changes give the SARS-CoV-2 virus an ability to infect humans that the Rat G13 virus doesn't have. And the novel coronavirus, it got this new phenotype from new mutant genotypes. Let's take a short but important conceptual side trip here. Mutations happen at random. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Mutations are a random process. No matter how much an organism might need a particular trait to do a little better and survive in their environment, they can't cause a particular mutation to occur just because they need it. And the environment can't cause a particular beneficial mutation to occur on purpose. But, If a mutation does happen, and that random mutation causes a beneficial phenotype that in a particular environment gives it more success relative to others that don't have the mutation and the new phenotype, that mutation should become more common in the population over time. It's just like the dog, for example, we talked about. The random mutation caused a new phenotype. You represented the environment when you selected the dogs to breed. That's how the random process of mutation and the non-random process of selection in the environment drive evolution of adaptations through differences in survival and reproduction. Okay, let's go back to thinking about the novel coronavirus. The mutations I described earlier gave the new coronavirus a novel phenotype of being able to infect humans, but there are others. For example, The novel coronavirus tends to replicate more in the upper respiratory tract as opposed to deeper in the lungs like other coronaviruses. Data indicate that it also affects different races and age classes and and very important in different ways. These phenotypic changes in the virus have given it a tremendous advantage in its new host, us, and we are all painfully aware of that. You might think that would be the end of our story for the coronavirus, but it's not. The virus continues to evolve and change based on the random process of mutation and the non-random nature of selection. Evolution never rests. As long as DNA replicates, there will be more errors, which means there will be more mutations. And as long as there is variation in the environment which influences the success of the different phenotypes produced by those mutant genotypes, there will be natural selection and adaptation. And we know the novel coronavirus is already doing just that. The SARS CoV 2 virus isn't just one genotype. Comparisons of samples from many infected individuals have already found hundreds of different mutations. Most of them are neutral. One of the mutations, however, has caught the attention of scientists. The mutation is in a gene that encodes for the spike proteins. The original form of the protein is called D614. The mutation is called G614, and this has to do with the particular amino acid at position 614 in the spike protein where we see this change. This mutation seems to happen independently in different populations. However, when the G614 variant arises in a population, it increases and spreads rapidly, becoming the most common and sometimes the only variant. Does this mean that the G614 has greater success in humans than D614? Is there something about us and the change in the spike protein which increases its ability to infect more individuals? It might be due to chance, but researchers have noted that this single mutation seems to make this virus strain a little bit more infectious. This ability to infect more cells and make more virus falls under what evolutionary biologists would call fitness. So based on what we know now, the G614 variant appears to have greater success or higher fitness relative to the D614 variant. It doesn't necessarily make the virus more lethal, but it might be making it better at finding and infecting new hosts. Okay, so we know the virus is evolving. What about us? Are we evolving in response to the virus? There's been a fair amount of confusion about this point in particular. Some people have suggested that we should just let the disease spread and wait for herd immunity to evolve. Let's untangle some serious misconceptions here because herd immunity and a population evolving in response to selection from a disease are two completely different things. Herd immunity is not selection. Selection occurs when a disease sweeps through a population and kills individuals whose genetically based phenotype makes them more susceptible to the disease than others. That seems to be what is happening with bats. Their high viral load suggests that they do have some genetically based features that have been favored by selection over time and have accumulated in their populations. This is probably one part of what allows them to tolerate so many viruses as just part of their normal existence. Herd immunity is completely different from that. Herd immunity is not a change in the genetic characteristics, the alleles, genotype, or phenotype frequencies of a population after selection. Herd immunity is a change in the immune status of individuals in the population. It occurs when the vast majority of individuals in your population have already encountered a virus, either naturally or by vaccination, and their immune systems are turned on, they're activated, so they can effectively mount a defense against reinfection and further spread of the disease. Let me explain how this works. Think about a population of humans who have never been exposed to a new disease. Suppose when an individual is infected, they experience the disease and after recovering they are immune and can't catch that disease again. When this new disease is introduced into our hypothetical population, people become sick and spread the disease to others. As more individuals go through this process, there are fewer and fewer individuals that the disease can potentially infect because they have all had their immune system stimulated and turned on to protect them against another infection. This is also what happens with immunization. Because the vaccine stimulates the immune system of vaccinated individuals, introduction and spread of a disease is fundamentally blocked. It can't spread. That's how vaccines stop the spread of diseases from achieving pandemic proportions. That's how we have stopped so many diseases that have devastated lives throughout history. That's why we don't see the victims of polio, smallpox, and countless other merciless illnesses as much as we used to. That's why measles, an exceptionally problematic and potentially lethal disease in children, doesn't cause the large-scale outbreaks it used to. You see, we vaccinate. And because we vaccinate in large numbers, we can stimulate immune systems and achieve herd immunity. So what about the novel coronavirus? Why not go on with life and wait for herd immunity to kick in? The simple answer for that is numbers for herd immunity to be effective, you need around 80% or more of a population to be immune to the disease. An additional problem is that in the process of all those individuals becoming immune, a lot of other individuals die along the way. As we have unfortunately seen, COVID-19 can be lethal. So one problem with waiting for herd immunity is that a lot of people would probably die needlessly because we decided to just let the virus spread. This disease spreads fast. And even with what appears to be a relatively low mortality rate, our healthcare infrastructure would be overwhelmed with the vast numbers of sick individuals that would be experienced. We've already seen a horrific glimpse of what that looks like. Someday, if an effective vaccine can be developed, an active immunization program that includes a large majority of the population could help us establish herd immunity. Another limitation to taking a herd immunity approach is that we still don't know some basic things about this disease. You see, herd immunity depends on individuals being able to maintain an immune response in their body. Let's think about measles again. Current measles vaccines can stimulate your immune response that is sustained by your body over time. One-time inoculation with a vaccine usually does the trick. Measles vaccines used in the 1960s didn't necessarily stimulate this long-term immune response, but the form used now does. Influenza vaccines, in contrast, require an annual shot because the flu virus keeps evolving. While there are many promising vaccines and therapies being researched and developed at an astounding rate right now, we still don't know how soon that vaccine will be available. We don't know how soon it can be deployed at a large enough scale to halt spread through herd immunity. Current world and U.S. population estimates at this time in 2020 are about 7.8 billion and 331 million respectively. So what we're talking about here is getting vaccines, or at least the immune system stimulated, in over 6 billion people globally and about 265 million people in the United States alone. Developing a vaccine, even if it's one that can maintain an immune response, is just the first part of yet another stage in this very long journey. We've covered a lot of topics, so let's summarize and bring this all together. Number one, mutations cause random variation in genetic material. Sometimes mutations have no effect, sometimes they have a negative effect, and sometimes they have a beneficial effect. Number two, if a mutation has an effect on phenotype and is heritable, natural selection can act. If the mutation causes phenotypes that negatively affect survival and reproduction, the mutation should become less common in the population over time. In contrast, if a mutation causes beneficial variation in the phenotype, natural selection can cause the mutation and the new phenotype to be more common in the population. That's how mutation and adaptation are related, and we can see examples of both in the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Mutations in the novel coronavirus affected how contagious it is and how it infects human hosts. This increased success caused virus particles that contain these mutations to become more common. Data show that the virus is still mutating, still evolving, still adapting. And number three, although it kind of sounds like it has some superficial similarities to natural selection, herd immunity and natural selection are two different things. Using herd immunity as part of a larger strategy for combating the COVID-19 pandemic or spread of any virus is not about letting the virus run rampant and selecting against certain individuals and causing a genetic change in the population. Instead, it is a different kind of phenomenon related to how many individuals have had their immune system stimulated to combat the disease. That's a tool we quite frequently and effectively use to protect humans as well as our four-legged companions. One of the strongest pieces of evidence we can see for how evolution works is in dogs. (coughs) All of the different species and breeds represent products of selection for different traits and features. Random mutations occurred, the new phenotypes they produced were noticed, and those individuals were selected to make the next generation. In that next generation, the favorable trait was more common. Over time, sets of traits accumulated, and that's how we got different breeds. Border collies, corgis, pointers, Jack Russells, beagles, all the others, each have their special traits accumulated over time through selection. And the same thing is even true about viruses. All the different strategies they use to invade cells are collections of tactics that originated with the mutation. In much the same way that we intentionally selected certain traits in dogs, our bodies have unintentionally provided the selective landscape that has favored certain traits in viruses, but this has come at our expense. Instead of selecting for favorable traits that make us happy, like with puppies and dogs, it's our vulnerabilities that ultimately select which traits make the virus successful. It's ultimately our weaknesses that allow them to do the things that they do. I'm Phil Gibson and this has been Biota. Before I get to the credits, I want to make a very important announcement. Please visit your local animal shelters and other rescue groups to either adopt a pet who I promise will give you unconditional love or at least donate funds to support their work. They need our support now just as always. And if you do decide to purchase an animal from a breeder, please do your homework and make sure they are reputable and know what they're doing. And one more thing, like Bob Barker used to tell us, please spay or neuter your pets. They would do the same for you. Terry Gibson helped with editing and co-writing duties. Opinions expressed here are those of the author alone. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. You can find a transcript of this episode and others, as well as resources on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com. Thanks for listening.